Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you show us the way, the truth and the life through this passage? And we ask this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Well, in today's episode of EastEnders, I mean, in today's reading, of course, it gives us the detail about the birth of the sons of Jacob, who were in time to become the forefathers of Israel. However, the passage highlights far more than the proliferation of children. Maybe on first hearing, we might have sympathized with one or other of Jacob's wives more than the other. I think it's easy for us to do. You see, this places us right back in the midst of their rivalry. And that's an all too familiar territory we easily slip into without even realizing. Now, apparently, I have second cousins once removed, and I also have first cousins twice removed. Well, whenever I used to gather with my own cousins, and they were all older than me, they used to delight in saying, Lisa, come on, you've got first cousins once removed. And, and they tell me, and I frankly, by the end of it, I was more bewildered about who was in my family than when we began. And I wonder if having heard Indrani read that passage, you may have gathered that in total, we heard about eight children being born. But frankly, to who was each one born? And, you know, were there not just two wives, but more than that? So just to recap, two sons were born to Rachel's servant, Billa, two sons to Leah's servant, Zilpah, two sons and a daughter to Leah, and a son to Rachel. And this is in addition to the four sons who are already born to Leah and listed uh, just before in the previous chapter. So to give us a bit of context to our reading in that previous chapter, we read the treacherous circumstances of Jacob's marriage to a pair of sisters, Leah and Rachel. Now, expecting to marry Rachel after seven years of free labor, Jacob, whose name was the deceiver, was stunned to find that his father-in-law had switched sisters during the night. And the end result of this ploy was Jacob being married to two women and with another seven years of labor ahead of him. So, of course, we are still in our series about being human in a God-shaped world. First of all, what are the humans doing? Well, as Indrani started the passage, we heard Rachel, despite her great beauty, and that, that she was the wife loved by Jacob, is despondent and declaring to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Not only is she desperate to become a mother, she envies her sister Leah with her four boys. As I said, we can unwittingly slip into envy, though of course we never call that to ourselves. Naturally, we want the best for us and our near ones. But there is misery in comparison. 
And that's all too easy to do. Jesus spoke about this to his disciples as he was telling Peter of his future. Peter then looked to John asking Jesus, well, what about him? Jesus lovingly pointed Peter away from comparison of comparing John's future with his own saying, what is that to you? You must follow me. And that's a word for us. We must follow Jesus and keep our eyes on him and what he is doing in our life. In Envy, Rachel follows the unfortunate example of Jacob's grandmother, Sarah. She takes matters into her own hands when she doesn't conceive and give, gives her own servant to Jacob. Billa soon bears Jacob two sons, they're Rachel's by proxy. And thinking more of her rivalry with her sister rather than her thankfulness for these sons, Rachel names the boys for her circumstances and her feelings. So she calls them Dan and Naphtali. That means I am vindicated and I won the struggle with my sister. And at the same time, Leah has stopped becoming pregnant, perhaps because Rachel's influence is keeping Jacob from sleeping with her. And she now follows Rachel's example and gives her servant Zilpah to Jacob to sleep with. And she too gives birth to two sons. These belong to Leah by proxy. And she names them for her happy mood, Gad and Asher. Now both sisters drawn into rivalry. And they know Rachel remains without birth children and Leah remains unloved by her husband, Jacob. Well, their conflict flares up around harvest time. When Reuben, one of Leah's sons, brings home some rare mandrake plants. And little is known about these mandrake plants, but it appears that it was thought they would help with infertility. So when Rachel asks Leah for the plants, she's likely hoping that they'll help her to get pregnant. Leah lashes out at Rachel. She says, you've taken my husband and his love, and now you want to take my mandrake plants. Rachel, apparently desperate, offers to give Leah one night sleeping with Jacob in exchange for these plants. Around this time, we see that Leah prays to God. Did you catch it in verse 17? God listened to Leah. Clearly, she was speaking to him in prayer. And then she begins to bear children again, having another two boys and a girl. This time, the names she gives both boys indicate God's provision in her life. And Rachel, too, ends by praying. God listened, and she at last bears her first birth son, Joseph. His name amounts to Rachel's next prayer request. It's still the same as the one she said to her husband, or what she asked her husband. It's a request for another son to follow. This is what the humans are doing, 
What about God? What is God doing? Well, God is sovereignly working his purposes out. He is fulfilling the promise made to Abraham and to Jacob that this family would become more numerous than the stars in the sky, or indeed like the dust of the earth, as he told Jacob. And he's doing this despite Leah and Rachel's unrighteous mutual envy. And despite the fact that they are trying to problem solve in the beginning themselves. The graciousness of God shines out in this passage, even if in small glimpses. Because whilst both Leah and Rachel are in misery because of their envy, one to the other, when each of them prays, God listens and he answers. And Leah, though unloved by Jacob and despised by Rachel, had a great purpose in God's plan. It was through Leah and not through Rachel that came the Levite tribe, the priestly tribe, through Levi, and Judah, the royal tribe. And of course, supremely, the Messiah, Jesus, came through the tribe of Judah. And Judah was Leah's fourth son, whom she named, I will praise the Lord. Well, what can we learn of how to live well in a God-shaped world? As I said, it's envy that lies at the heart of the misery in this passage. It can form in each of us as we compare ourselves to others or desire what another person has. Perhaps it's a relationship, an attitude, or a possession. Just as we can be affected by our own success and failure, envy affects us through the success and failure of others. Envy is responding to the person who has what we lack. And with resentment towards them and despair within ourselves, we long for what they have as our own. Sir John Gielgud summarised envy well in these despairing words. When Sir Laurence Olivier played Hamlet in 1948 and the critics raved, I wept, he said. The success of another person made him feel small. I suppose had the critics pound Olivier, Gielgud would have felt big so that the failure of his fellow actor would have been his triumph. And here we see another ugly element of envy. It tends to alienate us from people who are much like us. We saw it with the sisters. People who ought to be our allies. A musician rarely envies an author and a pastor rarely envies a historian. Instead, we envy people with similar interests, similar gifts, similar callings to ourselves. We envy the very people with whom we should be co-laboring, loving, working alongside. Our envy drives us apart, making us potential competitors instead of allies. 
Envy seems to offer happiness via comparison, but that is a lie. If we are worse off in the comparison, we move towards despair and resentment. We hate our neighbor. Of course, we don't say that to ourselves, but eventually we end up hating God for holding back what we consider an essential element of our happiness. But if we win the comparison, we grow in pride in our sense that we are a unique gift to the world. Here too, we hate our neighbor and eventually we see God as just a mere power who exists to give us the success we're sure we are entitled to. What is the opposite of envy? If you look in the English dictionary, there are a few uh, stabs at it. But I think the Bible gives us the answer. The opposite of envy is rejoicing, especially in the success of the people who are closest to us, those ones that we might otherwise naturally call our competitors. Paul speaks to the Romans and guides them to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. The opposite of envy is feeling true sorrow at the failure, failures of a person in the same field as us. The opposite of envy is rejoicing, especially in the success of the people closest to us. The ones who receive the accolades we would like for ourselves. The ones who are garnered with praise for accomplishments much like our own. Yet we can have this joy, but we can only have it if we first find our ultimate joy in Christ and in his peace, as we sang earlier. And our joy in Christ comes by understanding and acknowledging that our deepest identity is found not in success or failure, but in our union with Christ. We are Christians. We belong to Christ. We have to know that our standing before God depends not on our accomplishments, neither what we have nor what we do not have. As we receive Christ as our Lord and Saviour, we are secure before him. And when we are secure before him, and when we know that we are, we can be secure before others. When we know we're secured in him, then we secured the opposite of envy, and that is joy. So what about us? What about tomorrow morning, Tuesday morning, Wednesday morning? That we begin our day by thanking God that we have Jesus. Jesus, he is our portion and he is our strength. If we start the day that way, how different our day will end. May the joy of the Lord be your strength today and tomorrow 
and every day. Amen.